Join us as we swim in the river of compassion, insight, and wisdom, addressing one of the most pressing issues of our time, namely addiction, with Dr. Bob Weathers and my colleague and brother, Dr. Roger Walsh. Let the logos flow. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, Life-Enhancing, Paradigm-Rattling Conversations with Cutting-Edge Thinkers contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. I'm John Dupuy and Dr. Roger Wallace. And today we have our guest, Dr. Bob Weathers. Bob is, he's a psychologist. He's been a friend of mine for over 10 years now, and we've worked on various projects. And what we worked on most together, but not exclusively, is working with the chronic problem addiction and alcoholism. Deep transformation is about transforming our human family to be the best versions of ourselves so we can get through this time in history and I don't think there's anybody that's listening to this who has not been affected by the disease of addiction. If you pay taxes, if you have any family members or human beings in your circle, and if you struggled yourself, I mean, it's just everywhere. Hopefully in this conversation, we we can get going with Dr. Bob. Let me say a little bit about him. He is a counselor. He's one of the most well-informed, poetic intelligent and compassionate people that I've ever worked with. It's terrific. And he's got a couple of books that are getting ready to come out with Cambridge Press University. And he was an academic for many years. And it's just had, oh my God. And we share a love for music. He's like an extraordinary drummer. And just he gets music at, at the deepest and best levels. And he also plays keyboards and writes and stuff like that. So welcome, Bob. And did I miss anything there? I'm touched, very touched by all that you said. I love you bringing in the music. Thank you for that and for all that you said. It's, yeah, it's beautiful. Thank you, John. I'm happy to be here. Honored to be here with you and Roger. I've had such respect for you, John, over all the years. You've been seminal, and we'll talk more about this, but you've been seminal in my own healing, my own recovery process. And Roger, you don't know this, but back in the from the very early 80s, you've been seminal in the development of my dissertation, your work with Dean Shapiro and, of course, Ken Wilber uh, had such, you know, just <laughs> deep respect for all these years. And so it's really so meaningful to me to come into your personal acquaintance in the, just the last the last year. I really, I really honored to be here with both you gentlemen. Mm-hmm. So just to get things going, and there's so many directions we can go on, and we didn't prepare, at least I don't. Well, you speak for yourself, John. Yeah, for this whole conversation. <laughs> That just sounded wrong. No, I've been preparing for this conversation my whole life. (laughs) Yeah. But one of the things, Roger, you mentioned before, you know, before the camera started rolling, so to speak, is that maybe we could come up with a working definition of what we're talking about when we say addiction. And my hope was that I have a partial background with uh, studying addiction in my psychiatric training, but nothing like the two of you. But one of the things I'm aware of is that so many people speaking about addiction have their own particular perspective and approach and way of looking at it. And often it's a reductionistic approach. Uh, addiction is a brain disease. Addiction is conditioning. Addiction is this. Addiction is that. And I think one of the things that our listeners and we certainly benefit from is a more integral perspective in which we benefit from Ken Wilber's big framework in which we are able to look at things from multiple perspectives. So I would just love to hear the two of you talk about addiction from a bigger picture, a bigger perspective, and 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 one which acknowledges the many factors which play into this condition. John, do you want me to take a stab at that first and then have you? Yeah, I'm just, please do. I'm a, so you wrote the Bible on this, and so I had no way what to try to <laughs> come in and, uh, you know, uh, your incredible influence. I, maybe how about if I talk more personally, Roger and, and John, and then John, you can bring in, I mean, you just have vast equipment to address this question. I'll tell you what, Roger, I don't know if you know this or not, but I was a psychologist and a professor, graduate school professor here in the Los Angeles area for years. And I think the statistics are like this out of Washington is 50% of clients coming to see an outpatient therapist in private practice 
or a clinic setting are clinically addicted. And that matched my experience. Honestly, you guys, I, I got out of graduate school. I have to tell you this, Roger, you talked about your psychiatric training and residency and so on. I've talked to physicians and my father was a psychiatrist. And so I spoke to my father about this over the years too. I think I had the least training of any of us. I had, uh, I didn't have a course in graduate school. It was a six-year doctoral program in clinical psychology. I didn't have a course. John knows this. I had one lecture in six years on addiction, which is just extraordinary. And then look at that statistic. I got out of graduate school and I had half my clients coming in. I was in private practice and teaching in the university. Half my clients were coming in. So you can bet your bottom dollar I started reading. <laughs> I'm in trouble. And so I began reading and let me talk about this later or not. Some of this is my personality and some of this is where I come from, but I've never been particularly judgmental about most things, at least of all about addiction. So I worked with clients and, and I felt as much compassion as I could. And I don't think I felt much judgment. And we'll talk about how universal stigma or judgment can be in addiction. But I'll tell you the turning point, and John, you know this intimately, and Roger, I don't know how where you are. Starting in midlife in my 40s, I started drinking, and then eventually, for the first time in my life, started drugging. I'd never, I'd never smoked a cigarette until I was 45 years old, so I, I caught up fast. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's sad to say. It's not necessarily a textbook entry into addiction. Most people that become addicted start in their early adolescence. That's most. That's the typical scenario. For me, it was midlife. And I sometimes joke with people, if you open up Wikipedia and look up midlife crisis, there's Bob Weathers' picture looking at it too, because it was, it was pretty epic in the worst of ways. And it was gradual. And so it just descended gradually into more and more severe addiction and experienced a great professional loss. I lost my tenured professorship owing to the the effects of addiction. And eventually, and I just want to keep it real, I lost my license in psychology. Both of these were devastating to me. I loved teaching. It was really what I felt called to do. And and then to lose my capacity to operate as a clinical psychologist, it was just devastating. You'd think that would have woken me up. And John, you know this story. It actually made it worse for me. I just kept just going just a downward spiral. Eventually, eventually, I, by just sheer grace, I woke up enough so to realize I need to get some help. It took me a long time to get to that place. And when I did, now I get to your question, Roger. When I did, I, I went into an addiction unit at a hospital. How ironic for me, it was ironic to the extreme. I was on the addiction treatment unit at a hospital where I had supervised students who'd been doctoral students that I had Taught. And there I was, a patient on the wing. And you want to talk about hitting bottom. It was just unbelievable for me, just the, the surreal aspect of it. But right there in the hospital, they had 12-step uh, meetings. And, and we went out of the hospital for meetings. And when I got out of the hospital, the only game in town really was 12-step was, uh, meetings. And that was the beginning of my awareness that I was going to need something more. And this begins to get at your question, Roger is that what I heard in the rooms of the 12-step meetings, which wasn't untrue, but as you said earlier, Roger, true but partial, was that addiction is a spiritual problem with a spiritual solution. And John, you know this as well, uh, uh, you know this about me, is that I've dedicated as much of my entire education as well as adult life to the cultivation of spirituality as I have being a psycho psychotherapist and a psychologist. And so that one resonated for me. And like, no kidding, it's a spiritual problem. I've got a massive spiritual problem. Now, the spiritual solution that was proffered in 12 steps, and I don't mean to step on people's toes, but I also want to be honest about this. It wasn't a spiritual solution that was adequate for me. I, it was very problematic. It was couched in very conventional religious language. I had a fair bit of conventional religion earlier in my life, and I actually had a fair bit of trauma from that. And so, just for me, that was not a particularly good fit. I had the good fortune of discovering a parallel program locally here in the LA area. And I got very involved in that refuge recovery, which was based in Buddhist practices, which is a much better fit for me. I'd been practicing mindfulness practice for decades. My doctoral dissertation was on that topic. Wasn't enough to keep me from getting addicted, John, and you and I talked about this, sure. but it was a mainstay before, during, and after. So that's the truth of it. And so I was really grateful to have a companion program. So I continued in, in the 12-step format with a sponsor, worked that assiduously, and also had refuge recovery as, a, as an alternate kind of a Buddhist approach to recovery. 
But there was still something missing. And John, that's where I reached out to you. As I went online, and because my doctoral dissertation back in the 1980s had been done in conversation with Ken Wilber, I was steeped in, well, proto-integral theory. <laughs> it became integral theory at some point. And it just never, in fact, I taught it in the graduate school. I taught one of the textbooks we used was Sex, Ecology, Spirituality. It was just a standard text that I used, which kind of blew students' minds. But I, I was very familiar with his quadrant model, his aqual model. And I thought, where do I find this? And John, you know the story. I went online. I did a fairly thorough survey and found one article that had been done at UCSF. You know the people that wrote it, John. I tried to track them down. It was on recovery from an integral perspective. And I think they just disappeared into the Bermuda Triangle. I, I, I tried to look them up too, Roger, and I'm pretty good at that. Gone. Couldn't find them. My mom had gone to UCSF, so I actually went through her and tried to get some help, but I couldn't track them down. And as the good as the fates would have it, and and tremendous grace, John, you published your book right at the time that I went into recovery, and within weeks of my, you know, frustrated attempt to try to track this down. I became aware of you, your friend and colleague, Guy, reached out to me. We began to be in conversation, and I wanted to just weep with gratitude because if there was a, a table or, or a stool, one leg of it certainly was 12-step for me. Another leg was the Buddhist recovery in the context of refuge recovery. But the third and, and most vital leg for me, truthfully, that made sense of the other two, plus a whole bunch else, was integral recovery. And John, that's, that's where your work came in. So let me say just a word about my experience more, and then I want to invite John for you to comment. As the son of a psychiatrist, both my parents, my mother was an epidemiologist in the public health department. I grew up in a medical family. In fact, I was the only one of, of my family, including my siblings, that didn't go into medicine. Everybody, everybody else, I was the runt of the or I went into clinical psychology. Uh, and so you know that for me, uh, entering into programs, particularly uh, my experience, at least in the local eight, uh, the local 12-step program I was involved in, is that there was a dismissal and, and a seeming almost total ignorance of what Ken Wilber would call the upper right-hand quadrant, which would be the medical, the physiological, the biological. And I, I can't have grown up in my family and not care a lot about that, whether I went to medical school or not, which I didn't. And so that was that was a problem for me. I was well aware of, especially with the advent of brain scan technology, advances in the neuroscience of addiction, that it just seemed almost criminal to me that, that for that not to be integrated into recovery. It was incredibly powerful language to help me deal, for example, with my shame. It's like to understand what you're up against biologically. I think it's just an incredibly important context. I don't think it's the end of it, but it's a very important piece. That was missing for me in a lot of the recovery programs, not, not working with John because John was well-equipped and, and committed to integrating the science of addiction, let's say. But my background was in clinical psychology and the fact that there would be so little emphasis given to the progress that has been made, particularly across the course of my career in the last few decades, in trauma theory and intervention, in the advances in attachment theory and in interpersonal neuroscience, sometimes called interpersonal neurobiology, there are all these advances that would really inform not only what gets people into addiction, but what might help to get people out of addiction. And I felt like that that, that was a really miss, a big missing piece. A couple more, and then I'm going to uh, hand it to you, John. In high school, I lived in the Central Valley of California, and my job through high school was working in the local pharmacy. And I loved that job. I loved working in, in the, the pharmacy. And I still remember, I think it was around 1970, 71 or so, just when I started working, I was a junior in high school, was when the war on drugs was announced. I remember from the White House, the war on drugs was announced. And how I remember it, I was working in the pharmacy, and now all of a sudden there were triplicate copies of everything required for prescriptions. And I was working with physicians and pharmacists and so on. I'm just very aware that there had been a change in, uh, there'd been a sea change, a huge change in, in national, you know, political kind of legal climate, and that that had a huge impact. Simultaneous to this, my father, as I mentioned, was a psychiatrist. I grew up with my father working in the state hospital system in California. And Roger, as you know, in the late 60s, there was the deinstitutionalization that went on here in the state of California, where the idea was, we'll, we'll close the so-called mental hospitals and we'll open community mental health centers. 
seemed like a pretty inspired idea at the time. They did close the hospitals. They closed the hospitals where my father worked and they didn't open the community mental health centers. They didn't, they didn't fund those. And so we ended up with a new problem. And this won't surprise you, Roger, but my father went from being a psychiatrist working in state institutions to now moving into working in state prisons. So my father was mm-hmm. chief medical officer at Soledad and Vacaville and these other centers. He just moved completely, just, just basically transplanted it. So I grew up with stories of this from my dad. He'd say, Bobby, 80% of those incarcerated here in the state prisons where my father worked, 80% of them are there owing to uh, drug-related offenses. They were either high most people have to be high to commit many of the crimes that happen, including murder, and not everybody. So they're either high or they were selling, which is a huge legal issue, especially with the war on drugs, or they were buying. And so dad ended up seeing the people in the hospital, in the in prisons that he would have worked with in the hospitals. Now that had a huge impact on me. And that gets at Ken Wilbur's lower right-hand quadrant, which would have to do with societal, legal, systemic issues. And that really, that informs a lot for me as a psychologist, because people, now, now you don't get treated, you get incarcerated. So there's a kind of fear mongering that goes on. There certainly is a tremendous amount of shame and stigma to, uh, stigmatization that goes on. I felt that, and I didn't feel like that was necessarily being addressed so well outside of an integral framework, John. I'll mention one other piece that has to do with the lower left-hand quadrant is that it's not that addiction isn't a spiritual problem, but former spiritual solutions for many people in my generation forward, I really felt this, had been raised in kind of conservative, in my case, Christian background. It was no longer an adequate container for my spirituality. And so you could you could say at a cultural level that old solutions, maybe even to spiritual issues, they no longer, as Yates would say, the, the center can't hold. It begins to lose its traction. And I was I was of that generation, and so I was kind of stuck in between. In between, there's no I'm not blaming anybody. This is just a phenomenological reality. And so, in the absence of of a of a, an adequate container, I eventually turned to altered states as just one way to access ecstatic states. I was always interested in spiritual experience, and that becomes a part of the picture too. And so. How that's relevant is that providing conventional religious or spiritual responses to addiction, while it may work for some, doesn't work for all. And so what I discovered in many of the programs I was involved in is kind of a one-size-fits-all, and I don't know that any of us are one-size. You know, as complicated, Roger, as you are, and John is, and Bob is, all of us are complicated human beings, how could a single a kind of one-trick pony approach to addiction recovery makes sense. It never did resonate for me. So I've been committed now for the last 10 years of educating myself as broadly as I can. Uh, you, uh, you introduced a book right before we began today. I've got all these books behind me, most of them are on addiction recovery, and I've not read that book, Roger, so it's like another book. Back on it, but it just you just you know you just keep trying to I treat, keep trying to kind of deepen and broaden my understanding of addiction recovery. My mission has been to educate. My mission, you no, know, I no longer teach in the university, but my mission is to educate. So I work within treatment settings. I supervise helping professionals. I work one-on-one with clients. Many of my clients themselves are in helping professions. So my mission and desire is to help kind of spread spread what it is that we're talking about here, which is a hopefully a set of perspectives that is comprehensive enough to address something as complex as human addiction and and healing. So that's my opening preamble. Thank thank you, Bob. Let me me say a little bit about it. And also, I I just want to say that I respect how much you've been honest about what happened. You know, when you lost your tenureship, you're, you're obviously you can, from what you said, you can see you were, I'm sure you were very popular and you're a great teacher as a professor and your license, that thing that you worked your whole life for, and then you lose control of your life because of these substances and you lose that all, you know, and, and I don't know how many of us would at that point, you know, not kill ourselves or, or jump off a bridge or some other thing or just OD, but you, you came through and you've used that, that story and your experience to be able to relate to people. And you just turned it around. And, and I used to say to my, my students, you know, that in recovery, you can take your deficits and make them your assets it becomes part of your medicine, a part of the story that you can carry with you to, to help others. And, and basically the, the road to recovery involves service. And that's one of the good things that comes out of, of 12 steps. 
And let me just give my definition of addiction. Before you let me respond, just parenthetically, give what you just said. I'll, I'll lose this this thread if it's okay. Mm-hmm. Then I want to pick right back up. Really appreciate what you said, and I, I want to say this. Maybe it's implied by what I said earlier. Even though, as a psychologist and and as competent as I knew how to be, it only became clear to me how much less I had to offer to my clients in hindsight. That is by going through my own hitting bottom and my own process of recovery over the last decade, it's so clear to me that though I wasn't judgmental, I was probably marginally helpful. And I've, and I've, I've questioned myself about this, and I've actually questioned groups that I've led around this, as, as it will sometimes come up, do you have to be, do you have to know addiction firsthand to be working in addiction recovery? It's a question that comes up not infrequently. And the answer is no. A qualified no. I I needed, in order for me to get to where I did, I needed to go through the valley of the shadow of death. And through tremendous grace and support of friends like you, John, I've made it through. And I'm very grateful for that. And now I can reflect back. There's not a client that I sit with that I sit with with dry eyes. There's just a deep, deep sense of interconnection. But John, you and I have talked about this, is that if it doesn't require my having been addicted to work with those that are are in recovery from addiction, it requires for me to know suffering and know suffering consciously. And you do, John, and Roger, I presume that you do, and you can bet your bottom dollar that I do, and clients can smell that out. It's, it's a kind of a tacit knowing that goes on. They can tell if you know that or not. I just saw a client this week that said, this client was blaming it on lesser trained clinicians. He said, he was attributing it to my doctorate. I know plenty of people with doctorates in all fields that don't know suffering. And so I don't think that's the training we're talking about. It's kind of a life training, but it shows up and you can't fake it. It really manifests, I think, is humility and compassion, is that there's a tremendous humility that comes from, from the kind of suffering that takes us to the edge of our life. And there's a compassion that goes hand in hand with it. So for that, I'm really grateful. And that is completely, John, I've told you this before. I would not want to roll back to who I was, let's say 20 years ago. 20 years ago, I was in, in rank addiction. But I wouldn't want to go back to who I was before all of this, the kind of the innocent version of Bob. I would be happy to spare people I love, particularly my wife and my daughter and friends of mine and students of mine that have gone through this with me in some form or fashion. That I really grieve. That I really grieve. But in terms of having some kind of nostalgic fantasy, can I just go back to the Garden of Eden? I would never trade this that that I've been given through this, the gift of this for that. In fact, my whole body has the chills right now when I tell you that. So it's a it goes hand in hand with this, and I'm incredibly grateful for that. It informs everything now. So yeah, if I could it could absent the pain of those that I love, but also I wouldn't mind having a little bit less pain myself personally, but I'm not sure I'd be who I was now. So it's hand in hand with this. I just wanted to insert that, John. It's so uh it's it may be one of the most important things I can say, and it's implied in what you said. Is that what does Rumi say? Some demolitions are actually renovations. I've been renovated by this, and it was a demolition. There's no making that pretty. I'm so grateful for the renovation. Yeah. Thank you. And, and yeah, and that's a thank you for such an such a very open, authentic sharing. And John, what I was I've been struck by in reading your book, Integral Recovery, which I, I, I want to acknowledge is just beautiful. It really is a pioneering work in bringing together multiple perspectives, multiple perspectives on this incredibly complex condition and incredibly demanding treatment. And Bob was talking about the the importance of the fire of suffering. And and, and I, I'm struck by how much you have opened yourself to the suffering of so many addicts in very deep, heartfelt way. And you've really gone through the fire with a lot of different people. So, the, so your your approach, your perspective, your book, your work, this movement you've created is informed both by a big picture intellectual understanding, but also by really going through the through the fire with a lot of people and a lot of pain and pushing yourself through circuits <laughs> through recovery things like being in the freezing wilderness for a month or more at a time, which I'm grateful never to have done, but you've done many times so it's a it's a wonderful combination i'd love to hear you you speak to both what bob said and to this to the original question we we came up with how do we how do we hold addiction in all these 
different ways and how do we bring that together? Well, let me say that I learned a lot about addiction, more than I learned in grad school. I've, I had maybe one lecture on it and master's degree trying to teach me how to be a therapist. I learned around sitting around campfires at night with my students in this wilderness programs, programs that I worked at, and they'd tell their stories and tell their stories, and I would just listen and absorb it. I'm not an addict myself, but I have struggled with depression. And I've, I mentioned before that my older brother committed suicide in my house, very pre-planned. I mean, you know, he whatever he did, he did well. And that's what started me. My wife said that I had some depression before that, but that really, that really started me on a downward spiral. So with my students, I would say, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a drug addict, but I've been depressed and I'd say a little bit about it. And I would say that, that probably, I don't know what the statistics are, but addicts also suffer from depression. And off, oftentimes addiction is seen as a way to, to cope with depression. And in the beginning, it, it works. That's why you keep going back. So I would say to my students and forgive my friends, but I'm at least as fucked up as you guys are. So, you know, let's have a conversation. Go, yeah, you get us, you know, and I just listen and ask a lot of questions. But let's talk about just uh, my my definition of addiction, which is is based on the, the people that I've worked with and known and experiences. When you begin to lose control of your life, and let's just talk about substances here, and there could be other kinds, there could be sexual, all these different things to these substances. And at some point, something in your brain goes, okay, this is not the road to Valhalla, or this is not, this is not the way to, to get my life to be where I want to be. And you see how bad it is, and you see the results, and you you're you're losing your familiar relationships and you're losing your money and your future and, and all these things and all of this stuff. And you still cannot quit. Man, think about that. And, you know, some people say, well, you know, trying to be inclusive, they go, oh, we all have addictions. And a student of mine one time, somebody said that in a meeting we're at, and he said, you have no idea what you're talking about. The crawling the streets at night looking for the angry fix that Ginsburg wrote about in his great poem, Howl, and and the the, the torment and, and uh, just it's... It's an unbelievable hell. And one of my experiences, I, I sat with one of my students who came to, to live with me. And my house used to be a treatment center back in the day in Utah. And I sat with him as he came off. It's a little guy. I think you guys know him. But he, he was drinking like two liters of vodka a day, a massive amount of pills, just everything he'd get his hands on, and enough, enough heroin to, you know, kill an ox on this little guy's body. So I sat with him through that. And, and the suffering was so immense. You know, I, I was thinking, you know, I wouldn't wish this on Hitler. You know, it was just like, this is hell. And, and you know, I mean, throwing up and diarrhea. And then it's, at some point, he goes psychotic and starts speaking in different characters and different voices. And, you know, I mean, like, like a classic possession story it could have been made into that and we went through that and we went through that that something broke open me that experience just building on a long line of, of listening to people but to be there and suffer through that and i would believe me i was suffering too just really you know just just hurt and i've had a lot of addicts in my family some have lost their lives and friends and bob you know you're one of my first choices when i find somebody it seems at all appropriate i call dr bob and I'll say this, I, you probably don't have anybody left any schedule right now. You're so busy with the work you're doing, but you're just a wonderful resource. You know, you win some, you lose some, you know, and I have some success stories, but I have a lot of tragic stories where I lost people that I really love, students that I work with. And in some cases, they got maybe a, an additional 10 years out of their lives, really functional. High, and and then, then they lost it, you know, and then they OD and uh, we lost them. So, and I'm not doing that work so much anymore. I'm working on you know, I Awake, which is also a tool that we use as part of a treatment, not a cure. And of course, this podcast and, and the different things that I do. Yeah, it's, it's hard. It is so hard. And sometimes, you know, you just have to be ruthless because you're dealing with, you know, the, the addictive personality comes out and there's this, the sober self and then there's the addict self. Which the way I would explain it to my students is like you start off and and here's your say yourself, this 
balloon or this circle. And the attic part of you is like this little thing. And it begins to grow and grow. And the real self begins to get smaller and smaller and smaller. Completely transforms your personality. You walk down any street in any city in the United States, and you're going to see somebody who's got scabs all over their body, maybe missing their teeth and skinny and just, ah, you know, meth addicts. And I mean, it is all over the place. So yeah, that's what it is. It's losing control of your life to these substances. And after a while, it's not even the high anymore. It's just, you don't want to get sick. You know, you want to avoid coming off because that is an unspeakable hell. So yeah, so an integral recovery. I mean, honored 12 steps in the book, if you've read it, it was the starting place and it helped hundreds of, if not millions of people got help where they couldn't get help any other way. And nobody was getting rich and nobody was making money off it. It's an incredibly noble thing, but it left out a bunch of stuff. Right. And and that's what integral recovery was an attempt to do using Ken Wilber's model. And I read a, a p- early paper uh, online, like what is aqua? I think it was called about 40 pages from Ken and all quadrants, all levels, all line, all states, all types, all stages, all that stuff. I think I got that right. And it just like, it was like the Rosetta Stone for me. It's just like, I can see how everything falls into place. So I got really excited and, you know, I called up the Integral Institute at the time where all these really brilliant people are all going to Boulder to hang out with Ken. It was a really exciting scene. And I was just so blown out. I mean, I called this, the person who's answering the phone, I've shared this before, but she was an eight on the Enneagrams, you know about that. I said, I got it. Just, we're really busy here. We don't have time for this yet. Plot. <laughs> and, <I'm out. laughs> and I was like, I was in such a state of grace. I went, you know, they really are busy there. You know, it's like, it's okay. So anyway, I, I just felt so, so grateful. Uh, eventually it, it, I got to the point where I think I'm supposed to write this book. And I was like, God, are you sure? Certainly can be better than me. Right. And I have self-esteem issues too that, but work into my neurosis and depression. But anyway, so I, I, I began to write it. And early on, a neighbor of mine, Heidi, who is the, the, the staff or uh, one of the persons behind managing, organizing, I always say it wrong, she corrects me later. Anyway, she's very important to this podcast. She started working with me and we wrote that book together and I would get a sifter of brandy and a cigar and do Churchill. No, I didn't do that. But sometimes I would just pace around and boom, boom, boom. And man, she would write it down and then we'd edit that page together. And it was an incredibly moving experience and it really felt like it wanted to be written, you know, and occasionally I'll pick it up. I'll read it and I go, this is obviously channeled, you know, <laughs> I know that I can write that well and that smart. So it, it, it really felt that I w- it was, it was a, you know, one of those experiences of your life's purpose coming through you. And it's one of the most satisfying things I ever did was writing that book. And of course that opened doors and soon enough, our house was full, I think almost for a decade, at least eight years, I think it was that we lived. And, and when they live in, when they, when your, your students live in your house with you, there's no days off for good behavior. You know, it's eight days a week as the, as the Beatles said, Lynn McCartney, but talk about learning a lot. And obviously I, 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 I learn people say this all the time, as much from my students as they did from me. And and that led to me writing the book because I thought if I would just show them videotapes of Ken Wilber speaking, they, they would figure it out and, and they'd be there. And then they would go like this and smoke would start coming out of their ears. You know, Ken speaks on a level that you kind of have to have the right DNA. I don't know. I That's one thing I really get. I really get Ken, but they didn't. So I said, okay, I'm going to have to try to explain this. And one of my first assistants was Marco Morelli, which you guys probably know, who wrote the integral practice book with Ken, a wonderful young man. He came to be my assistant because he had friends and family issues that he wanted to participate. And so I started giving my lectures on integral recovery. And this guy had been working personally with Ken for many years at that point. And I was so afterwards, Mark, I'm okay. He goes, no, you're cool, man. You're doing fine. So anyway, that it, it came from there. And then I worked many years on that level. And where are we now? Well, integral recovery really hasn't quite been born yet in a big way. We're still struggling with that. My hope is at some point, and there, there have been some treatment centers that are actually adopted and are using it now. And of course, I didn't, didn't copyright it or make any money from it because Ken didn't either. And he never asked a dime for me, you know, what became my a big part of my life and career. He was just always very kind and very supportive. 
So uh, I think it got worse during the pandemic. If you look at the stats, the isolation and the stress and the sadness and the loneliness and the hopelessness just went up. And I guess that's my opening statement about addiction. And before we started, Roger, you were talking about some really interesting stuff about where it is and where it's going, or, or maybe you can, you know, just add some perspective into what you've heard me say and what what Bob has said. And and as a health, you know, as as a doctor, how do you see this? It's beautiful, John. Always shared. Thank you. Beautiful. Yeah, I think what both of you have done is give a very deep, heartfelt expression of the way this disorder has worked you both personally and through your work with others and the incredible power it has over people's lives and the lives of those who they interact with. And uh, what I take away from what you both said is just the extraordinary compulsive nature of addiction, that it just it just can take over so completely and run one's life and run it into the ground or into the grave. And there's something something bizarre about that. And I, I, I'm thinking, looking over the big picture historically, the ways in which this has been, been understood. Initially, it was, of course, in previous times, it was in a religious demonic perspective. It was possession. And that makes experiential sense. I mean, it's not, <laughs> it does seem like and feel like possession in a way. And then it was a more, came to be more of a, well, condemnation, I'm trying to think of the right right phrase, a, a legalistic framework, particularly, that it was a moral, it went from theological to moral. It was a moral failure, that the individual just we just had the gumption, the guts, the moral fiber to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. You know, that would that was a way of understanding and the solution. And then it became psychological, initially psychoanalytic, attributed to psycho early psychodynamic factors, et cetera, et cetera. And more recently it's been this there were competing psychological perspectives on it, behaviorists with their conditioning. Uh, some of the transpersonalists with the spiritual, you know, it's a, it's a spiritual substitute gratification, the whole spectrum. And more recently, we have a neurological and biological kind of reductionistic approach that, you know, it's, it's, it's a chemical imbalance. That's simplistic explanation of all things psychological. And obviously, some much more sophisticated understandings too, which, as you said, Bob, really have their place and really have a place not only understanding the disorder, but also in a, in a comprehensive, integrative treatment approach to it. So we have all these different perspectives. And from what I can see, each of them has a part of the picture. It's all of those things. Yeah. Yeah. None of them has the whole picture. And part of the, our work and part of your book's work, John, and what both of you are trying to do is bring a more comprehensive approach, acknowledging the power and grace of, for example, the 12-step program, which, as you said, Bob, has saved millions of lives. And it's not, it's a one-size-fits-all approach. And if there's one thing we learn know in, from therapy of many kinds is one size does not fit all. Yeah. And one of the hallmarks of a really skillful therapist is the flexibility, their capacity for matching the need, the approach and the treatment to the needs of the needs of the person. And so, you know, and a good therapist has a, has a lot of arrows in their quiver, a lot of choices that they can draw from and match to the specific needs of the patient. So it feels like we're still not quite there in, in our understanding and approach to addiction. You've pointed to it, John, in your book, Integral Recovery, trying to bring many, many different perspectives, but it hasn't yet had the reach and outreach that is really necessary and that feels like it's really critical for effective widespread, scaled treatment of this incredibly devastating and 
far-reaching disorder, which as you both pointed out, I mean, 80% of the prison population in this country, which has 20% of the world's prisoners, addiction. I mean, that is extraordinary. As you point out, Bob, we've moved those people from state hospitals onto the streets and into prisons. And you know, this is this is one of the great crises of our time. And as I hope we'll get into later, it's going to get worse because the the technology for for creating and synthesizing and increasing the potency of substances is getting boats better. So we've got an enormous issue to deal with here of devastating consequences for individuals and families and all those touched by them, and of enormous scale. And we still don't have, for the most part, a big picture, multifaceted understanding and approach to its treatment. And we really need it. Amen. Amen to all that you said, Roger. Yeah. Yeah. And let, let me let me say that the key to simplify, you know, what we're talking about, what I worked on as, as a treatment provider, working with my students, living with my students, was what we call integral practice, integral transformative practice in kin speak or Michael Murphy and George Leonard. They I think they call the integral transformative practice, integral life practice. And then I called mine integral recovery practice, because I don't want to get sued by anyone. And basically, it's the idea. I mean, as, as we're getting, this is an incredibly huge problem and a personal disaster when it happens to you. So you're going to need all the bloody help you can get. I mean, AA meeting, support, sponsorship, terrific. It's all a good idea. But the idea of an integral practice where you work on your physical body, okay, exercise, yoga, nutrition, all of that becomes one of the key things you do in your life. An intellectual practice where you you listen to Roger and Bob a lot. You know, you you read Ken Wilber and you you begin to to expand your mind in positive, noble, honorable ways. And you start to be concerned about the the meta crisis we're talking about. And you read Shakespeare and you read this stuff and and you, you there's an intellectual aspect to it also. And learning about what what is this thing that's been kicking your ass, right? Learning the science behind it and realize that you're not alone. Millions of people have gone there before you. Millions of people have died and million people continue to die and millions of people are getting well too. So that continues. So, and you need an interior practice where you deal with the traumas from the past, where you deal with your shadow issues, maybe stuff that you inherited generationally from your family or just being alive in the world, you know, the, the suffering that that's, that opens up. And if you're open to that at all, that's a huge thing. So you have a way to actually, in your body, process the trauma. And the, the intellectual understanding is really good too, but it has to come through the body also. And then, of course, last but not least is a spiritual practice. Because a lot of the healing that comes through this is, it seems to be, even though you're busting your ass doing everything you're supposed to. It feels like 90% grace. You know, when it happens, it's like it's actually working. And it seems like it's coming from a higher source than your own struggles. Although the struggle and all the hard work is, you know, there. And I tell my students, well, if you put, if we put in as much energy as you spent on getting high and getting drugs, you know, whether it was breaking the houses, you know, smashing windows, grabbing stereos, selling your body, selling drugs, whatever it was. If you put that kind of effort into getting well and practicing, you got a pretty damn good chance of making this. So we practice together. We'd meditate two hours a day. And that's when I started using the binaural stuff. We had our meditation room up there. Boom. We start in the evening. Boom. We do another hour of meditation. And here we have guys right off the streets. I mean, hardcore addicts that were meditating two hours a day. And in the first week or so, they'd be flopped on the put the cushions and it's just like look like a bunch of recovering addicts with headphones on. And then, but shortly thereafter, in a few days, in a week and a half or something, you see there and they start assuming the position and they realize that this was something about them that was deeply personal. And the spirituality is not something that gets shoved in you, but it comes from inside of you, and they would start to 
be there. And then some of the shares that we would have to afterwards were just amazingly open and honest. They always are in 12-step meetings, but this, I think because of the meditation, took it even to, to a higher level. Yes, indeed. And I also wanted to throw in, I don't know if this is a good time, but I recently recorded a song and it's called Drunk's Prayer. And I wrote this song some years ago and I, I was in my house in, in Utah and I was starting to write down the lyrics and a friend of mine came over who was in recovery, had been really struggling with it, uh, alcoholic. And I, I said, hey, man, I got this song working on. You want to hear it? And I started playing to him and about halfway through, he starts sobbing. So it's like, okay, this is a keeper. I think I think I have a song here. So I think we've worked it out where we can do that. And of course, this will open up more. Is that okay with you guys that we do this now? Oh. Okay, let's let's hit it. When I started drinking. I was full of joy and happiness Romance and sappiness And the warmth that the bottle can bring But now I'm lying in my broken dream And my mind is trying to scream to me You ain't dying But I know that I am Cause I can't take it anymore And God, I'm almost through that door Cause I can't stop the drinking And the pouring and the lying And the whoring Years brings me to tears because I can't even remember all the lost nights and the last scenes and the bad fights and the bad dreams and waking up in my pain, in my shame, in my chains, in my vomit. And damn it, I get it. Cause I can't take it anymore And God, I'm almost through that door Cause I can't stop the drinking and the pouring And the lying and the whoring And the losing everything that I ever loved Except a little bit of me And a whole lot of booze And fear And I'm so scared So God, if you're listening It's me talking And if you say so I'll start walking Just one step Just one day in a right way And I'll pray And I'll hang on to you Cause it's all I can do And I'll hang on to you Cause I can't take it anymore And God, I'm almost through that door Cause you can't stop the drinking And the pouring Rainbow 
John. Wow. <laughs> Brings back a lot. Really very exquisite touching. Yeah. So, gentlemen, brothers, where do we go from here? Stay tuned to part two. As you can see, we are warming to our subject. Today's episode was brought to you by iWake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.